All right, gentlemen. Well, as we're uh, easing on in, we're gonna we left off last week. Um, masculinity and work. Uh, we didn't quite finish that last section on work and heaven. I know for some that might seem like an oxymoron, but oddly enough, it's not. Uh, does anyone need notes from last week? Travis, anybody else? Tyler, good to see you, man. How's the foot? Good. Yeah, it's too. All right. Pastor Matt, uh, remind me where the note, leftover notes are. So there's a Yeah. Sweet. Trust no. Got it. Oh, we did. Okay. No more from last week. Okay. I'm not seeing any. All right. All right. Cool. All right, fellas. Come on in. CB radio there. JB, thank you, man. Mm-hmm. All right, Travis, we are out of notes. I apologize. Oh. Yep, there is a microwave right there. Two of them, actually. Don't hurt yourself. Uh, gentlemen, today's notes, lesson nine on uh, masculinity and the sovereignty of God. There should be plenty, plenty going around. <clears throat> Thank you, JB, again for the uh, deluxe breakfast, Sammies. Uh, we got coffee. Are we good? All right. All right, gents. I'm going to uh, open with uh, one of my favorite prayers of the Valley of Vision. We've talked about this a lot. I know a lot of guys you have this. If you don't have this little book, it's a great investment, The Valley of Vision, uh, prayers from Puritans, reformers, and uh, similar individuals of a similar uh, cut. This prayer is called a, The Servant in Battle. And, and as, I, as I read these, uh, I like to just make these my own prayers and, and kind of pray them, pray them up to God and um, use these just as a launch pad. The servant in battle, O Lord, I bless thee that the issue of the battle between thyself and Satan has never been uncertain and will end in victory. Calvary broke the dragon's head, and I contend with a vanquished foe who with all his subtlety and strength has already been overcome. When I feel the serpent at my heel, may I remember him whose heel was bruised, but who when bruised broke the devil's head. My soul with inward joy extols the mighty conqueror. Heal me of any wounds received in the great conflict. If I have gathered defilement, if my faith has suffered damage, if my hope is less than bright, if my love is not fervent, if some creature comfort occupies my heart, if my heart sinks under pressure of the fire, thou whose every bomb, every touch life, draw near to thy weary warrior, Refresh me that I may rise again to wage the strife and never tire until my enemy is trodden down. Give me such fellowship with thee that I may defy Satan and I may defy unbelief, the flesh, the world with delight that comes not from a creature and which a creature cannot mar. Give me a draft of the eternal fountain 
that lieth in thy immutable everlasting love and decree. Then shall my hand never weaken, and my feet never stumble, my sword never rest, my shield never rust, my helmet never shatter, my breastplate never fall as my strength rests in the power of thy might. And Father, uh, what great words, what a great prayer. We make that our own this morning. As you are on the throne, you're not breaking a sweat at the controls of the universe. You're not threatened by Satan, by wicked agendas, by wicked men, great and small. You're not threatened, of, uh, not at all, by our imperfections. Uh, matter of fact, where, grace, where, where our sin abounds, grace abounds all the more for those of us in Christ. And so, Father, that's my prayer for all of us. Thank you for these dear men. Thank you for this, this united fraternal that we have in Christ together. As the psalmist said in 133, what, what a blessing it is when brothers dwell in unity as we do in here. And so, Lord, let our hand not weaken, our feet not stumble, and our sword not rest as we study your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, gents. <clears throat> We uh, just need to wrap up lesson eight from last week. Uh, apologies, we ran out of those notes uh, on work, biblical masculinity and work. And uh, we looked at uh, how uh, here was the fall, right, in Genesis 3. And before we had work, but what was the difference? What happened at Genesis 3? Yeah, the tediousness. There's these new words. You're still going to work, but it will be, there'll be a hard pushback of thorns and thistles. Okay, so work plus tediousness, futility, whatever you want to say. That's what happened in Genesis 3, though it existed before. And, and we looked at man's, uh, the man is designed to work. He's called to work from Adam. Uh, Eve was to be his helpmate. Um, Genesis 2.18. Adam's given the mission of the cultural mandate, uh, 1.26 to 28, to be fruitful, to multiply, to make the, the earth and all the stuff and the, and the hardware in it to slave, to promote human flourishing. And that will fundamentally require work as Genesis 2, 5, uh, excuse me, 2, 7, and 8. He's put in the garden to cultivate and keep it. And then there's this tediousness that comes in because of sin and go down the line in redemptive history and work becomes so important that 2 Thess 3.10, Paul says if a man's not willing, not, not able, but if he's not willing that he shouldn't eat. Um, and so that was sort of uh, the apostle, the apostle of grace. By the way, Paul, that was his solution um, to going against God's design for men and masculinity. Okay? Um, we looked at, furthermore, look, just trying to think through, like, what job should I take? Uh, we talked about things like wealth and, and you know, how I should think about that. Um, uh, we talked about uh, just discerning jobs that, you know, if you don't necessarily like your job, that doesn't mean... You know, you fell out of God's will. You can't fall out of God's will, right? That's, that's not possible. It just probably means that you're on the Genesis, this side of Genesis 3, and the work is hard, 
right? So there's no sort of utopian job this side of heaven. Uh, it's just how it is, okay? So concluding then, um, number eight in your notes, work in heaven. So it, it stands to reason that since work existed before the fall, right? Before the fall, that after, uh, after the fall, fall glor uh, totally glorified and redeemed, aka heaven, that work will still exist. And, and sure enough, in Revelation 21 and 22 and some other passages, Luke 19, I think it's Luke 19, yeah, Luke 19, um, we see that work still exists. And that would make sense because God created us for that. That's inherent to men and masculinity. So scenes portraying heaven and life after the return of Christ seem to include work. Um, the parable of the minas in Luke 19, it's in your, it's in your notes there. Luke 19, 11 to 27. Jesus is telling a parable that's similar to Matthew 25, the, the parable of the talents, where the story goes that uh, a great nobleman leaves on a long journey and he entrusts his stuff to his slaves and he returns and they're rewarded uh, proportionally to their faithfulness, not to their production, but to their faithfulness, okay? Jeremiah was faithful in his 50-year ministry. By the, way, by the way, Jeremiah is one of the longest books in the Bible. And how many converts do, do we know of that he had? Zero. Zero converts in a 50-year ministry. That guy's not going to get, you know, book deals from the hottest Christian book publishers and not going to be invited into conference. His ethos isn't going to be uh, skyrocketing, is it? Nevertheless, he was faithful. Okay? So anyhow, that, that's the idea here. So Luke 19, it says, When he, the master, returned... After receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. Right? Like a, that's a, a, a unit of, of money back in the day. Verse 17, and he said to him, well done, good slave. By the way, there are no better words to hear than that. Uh, whatever you want to happen as far as you're concerned when you get to heaven. And the words you want to hear, that's the words you want to hear right there. You talk about bottlenecking, all of life in your existence bottlenecking to one in one moment. That's the moment where we want to hear, well done, good slave. Okay? And he's saying that because these guys were faithful in their work. You know, not because necessarily they're a pastor or a missionary. We talked about that, that there's no like secular, sacred job. Okay, If, if your job requires sin, obviously we, we chatted about that last week. But from a cobbler to a gardener to a musician to a writer to a manager of people, whatever, it's, it's all sacred under God. Because back here... It's fulfilling the cultural mandate to subdue the earth and to love your neighbor as yourself. You should put that in here as well. Um, 
excuse me, Matthew 22, 39. Okay. All right. So he, uh, my mina, your mina has made 10 minas more. Verse 17, he said to him, well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over 10 cities. So he's given more capacity to work. This reward, picturing the millennial kingdom and beyond. Interesting. Verse 18, the second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. So Jesus seems to reward the faithful servants representing believers who are diligent to do what they can, to grind it out in this hard, short life, to be faithful in a little, whatever you're doing, landscaper, garbage man, maintenance guy, CEO. He rewards their diligence as they worked unto him. And it seems like the reward is increased capacity to work um, in the millennial kingdom. When Jesus returns, rules over the earth, at least in the millennial kingdom, probably beyond some situations in Revelation 21, 22. It says it will serve him, Revelation 22, 5. That seems like work will continue. And our ability and desire to complain will be eradicated forever. And tediousness will be eradicated forever. The only thing possible will be utter and total joy in that state, with our because we'll have our glorified, resurrected bodies. So the possibility of death, futility, disease, discouragement will be permanently eradicated. What will that be like? It'll be good. So that's, that's, that's uh, I think, helpful something helpful to look forward to. Revelation 22.3, furthermore, says there will no longer be any curse. No curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants or slaves will serve him. So, among other things, this seems to indicate the glorified believers will serve Christ in his presence for eternity, indicating some sort of work, since heaven is a place where the curse is done. I think we conclude that the work we perform will be unspeakably joyful, holy, Righteous, fulfilling. You won't have the disappointment of subcontractors being late or you being late. Uh, Christ-centered in every way. So the work we get to perform in heaven is something to greatly anticipate. This is what, will, being with Christ and being with the glorified believers, no more curse and work will all be part of what makes heaven heavenly. Right? That's the end of our just brief survey of masculinity at work. Thoughts, comments, anything I missed? All right. Moving on then, gentlemen. Masculinity. So, um, the last several, our, our last several times, we've been chatting about real like street level uh, topics of masculinity. We're going to come back to that. Uh, we're going to do masculinity and parenting, but I want to pull over and do something more like foundational theological. That's masculinity and the sovereignty of God. Not that men are sovereign alongside of God, but 
being reminded of that and how that plays into to men. And I think it's helpful to have looked at a lot of uh, things that we're just grinding out in the daily glory, glorified, uh, not glorified, but glorious mundanity of life under Christ, and then come back and be reminded of, of an essential topic. So the sovereignty of God summed up in a verse, Psalm 135, verse five and six, I know that Yahweh is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does. That's a statement of sovereignty in heaven, in earth, in the sea, and in all deeps. If you want to sum up the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in one verse, I think, I think Psalm 135 is a pretty, pretty fair one. And it's interesting that in American evangelicalism over the past, you know, century-ish, there's been a lot of talk about man's free will. Um, and what's interesting about that, that's usually a topic of debate and fiery defense. That's sort of a sacred cow uh, in American evangelicalism. But what's interesting about that is the Bible doesn't really address that subject. It addresses the idea that man is sinful and it addresses that God has a free will. The only one that is spoken of that has a free will is Psalm 135, 6 is a pretty free will, free willy verse, isn't it? Um, that's a majorly free will. Um, so this brings up the question of the sovereignty of God. How does this apply to us as men? Um, what, so what about this? What does the Bible say about it? Just a little pulling over and reminder about this. A few reasons, number one, gentlemen, uh, why an understanding of the sovereignty of God is important, especially for us guys. Letter A there, in no particular order, you could add to this. It helps us distinguish foundationally from true and false gods. Um, when, when scripture speaks, when God speaks uh, to his people or people in scripture speak about God, um, you know, God is often saying things like, I'm different uh, than, you know, the one-year the one Bible reading program right now, we're, we're, we're in the part right after the Exodus. God's saying, I'm different than the gods of Egypt. I'm different than the gods of the Canaanites. Or in the New Testament, I'm different than the gods of the Greeks. And one thing that God often does, if not always, to distinguish himself from them is to talk about his own sovereignty. This is like the continental divide between me and other gods. Uh, Isaiah 46, remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. Okay, so tell us more about that. In what way are, is there no other God? There's no one like me. Verse 10, participial phrase, elaborating further explaining what he just said, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I'll accomplish all my good pleasure. So what is verse 10 talking about? What's God talking about there? Anybody? Which is another way to say that God is sovereign. So God, all other false gods, the thing, the continental divide here is sovereignty. Sovereignty. That's the big thing that God likes to talk about of himself. This attribute to say, this is where I'm in my own category. There is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. 
So that's, he's talking about a lot of the ancient, ancient uh, East gods. And then in Acts, he's talking about the Greek gods, Acts 17. By, by the way, my kids are telling me the other day, like, yeah, dad, one of our friends believes in Zeus. Like, you sure about that? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're sure. Well, gently remind them that Zeus is in the category of what? Mythology. Mythology. What does mythology mean, gentlemen? Study of myths. <laughs> right. Speaking of which, Paul is in, uh, in uh, Mythology Central, and he says to them, to all these mythologists, while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found, this is great evangelism, by the way, I found an altar of this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So he's walking around, you know, Athens, and there's just statues everywhere. Every, I mean, everything that they could find a God for, they made a God for. And just in case they overlooked it, an unknown God. That wasn't something like that there's this God who's unknown. It was more like, in case we forgot something, we want to cover our bases here. I mean, they lusted after a polytheism. Therefore, what you worship ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And notice the attributes that Paul talks about. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. These are statements of sovereignty, among other things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined sovereignty, their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him, sovereignty, we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. So point being very basic here, God distinguishes himself from other gods in sovereignty. And that's probably a helpful way to chit-chat with and evangelize others. Second, why is this doctrine helpful? Because embracing the sovereignty of God helps us avoid worshiping an idol. The second commandment should not be ignored. Don't make a what? Yeah, graven image. Don't do that. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness. What's in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in your own mind, you might say, or the water under the earth. So this is an important issue, an important reason why uh, the details of doctrine about God is so important. Some people say, well, you worship doctrine, I worship God. Like, nope, sorry, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. God gives us doctrine and lots of it in a thick book, 66, so that we wouldn't break the second commandment. Because all mankind is craving to break the second commandment. I mean, we're bolting to break the second commandment. Um, and we're not to worship idols. Sound doctrine in scripture is given so we don't make the catastrophic error of idolatry. So we don't make a God in our own image, a God who isn't accurate to scripture. And so a God who is not completely sovereign cannot be defined as God. It's an idol. So there's a sense in which, depending on where in the Arminian spectrum, 
Arminianism commits idolatry. Because this is a subset of the, this absolute essential doctrine, the sovereignty of God. If we presume to worship God while rejecting his sovereignty, we're not worshiping God. We're worshiping a false God. No matter how long we sat in a church, how long ago we were baptized, how long ago we made a profession, a God who is not sovereign is a graven image. And we're not to break that commandment. So as we evangelize, or if you have a family and you shepherd your households, um, one way we're to do so is to, if you're a disciple of guy or whether it's your family or whoever, uh, teaching our, our, those we influence, both the who and the how of worship, and the who needs to be a God who is absolutely sovereign. You know, sometimes you hear people, I, I had someone tell me not, not too long ago, well, my God's not like that, talking about sovereignty and how God is sovereign over even the hard things that happen to that. A professing Christian, my God's like, not like that. Well, then you're, worship, then you're breaking the second commandment because you're worshiping a God you've made in your own image. And I would, and I would propose to us <clears throat> that even in American evangelicalism, uh, we've, there's a sense in which we've feminized God by stripping him. This isn't a popular doctrine anymore. The God is sovereign. We don't talk about that. And we'll talk in the next point why we don't talk about that a lot. So this is essential. R.C. Sproul said it's God's favorite doctrine. And if you were God, it'd be your favorite doctrine too. That God is sovereign. Um, we we want to influence people in such a way that we're not leading them, whether our kids, wives, whoever, that we're not leading them to break the second commandment. That God is God and we are not. Letter C, embracing the sovereignty of God. Another use, it brings encouragement and comfort to men living in this Genesis 3 world. Actually comforting, though not always easy to come to terms with, that God is sovereign. Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is a doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Among other things, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's, he's sovereign. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For he is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. That's, that's a consequence of his sovereignty. He leads me through this. This trial, he's leading me because he is sovereign. That's a great comfort. Psalm 139 uh, on God's uh, omniscience, omnipresence, which has to do with his sovereignty. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Wherever I am, God is sovereignly leading me. Similarly, verse 16 of Psalm 139, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not even one of them. An application intended to comfort us on the sovereignty of God. Of course, Romans 8, 28, all things, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To get into that promise, you gotta, you gotta be saved to those that are called according to his purpose. Sovereignty. In Revelation 21.4, the only way that the eternal state can be brought in is if God is sovereign. So it's just so peculiar why there's this 
mass, whether unintentional, ignoring, or kind of wanting to detour around this great godness doctrine of God, of his sovereignty. Why we would deny that and not want to emphasize that, I know not. Well, we know why. We have, we have some idea why. But within the church, that's just really unfortunate. Um, so the sovereignty of God is immensely practical, brothers. Immensely. Um, if not the most practical doctrine in Scripture. Though it doesn't necessarily give us, you know, that practical, like, street-level advice, you know, about the sluggard or a lion in the road or, or whatever. Side note, let, let me say this to the idea of practical versus non-practical texts. That idea, quote-unquote. There are many verses that appear to not give immediate practical advice, but like Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, just talk about the greatness of God. Uh, and sometimes we think of ourselves, well, I'm just more of a practical guy, just hands-on. Just give me the bottom line practical. And there's some truth to that, but we've got to be careful. Um, there's a danger because the idea of just give me the practical, oftentimes what that's talking about is center, that, center it on me. I, I like the practical, which in other words, give me something that's useful to me right here. Give me the tool, give me a piece of gear, give me something that for me right here for my use. And that, that can like be very me-centered, man-centered approach to theology and to God. And God does love us and does address us and does deal with us. Um, but this idea that give me this real practical, you know, the sovereignty isn't super practical. Calvinism is super practical. Um, it's, it, it can be cloaked in the idea that I want something, just give me something easy, an easy quick fix, ver quick fix verse, where because the universe and life are, are to center around me. Um, when God certainly loves us and takes care of us, but really all things are unto, through, and for, and by God. And so we're, we're kind of under God, right? Though we're united to Christ, as we studied from Romans 6 on Sunday, but my life, the universe, are to center around God which means I have to be careful approaching scripture and doctrines like this, like just give me that useful tool because all of scripture is to move us to worship, to worship God, not to just give me a quick tool so I can make my day go nicer. And ironically, as we worship and use scripture correctly and approach God correctly, your day will go nicer. The most practical things from Scripture are things that aren't practical. The most practical doctrines from the Bible are things that aren't immediately practical, though, though they are incredibly practical, like sovereignty. We just might have to dwell on this a little bit more and become worshipers of God. And therein, therein, Scripture becomes much more Practical. So we shouldn't say things like, well, I'm not much of an academic guy or a heady guy or whatever. I, I just need the practical. Well, God gave scripture to like first century slaves. 
you know? That's who the majority of Christians were in the first century. That we would worship and see, oh, huge doctrines like the sovereignty are the most practical. Okay? All right, letter D, embracing the sovereignty of God helps man embrace his proper place. In addition to, in addition to comforting his proper place, Deuteronomy 4.39, know therefore today that, and take it to your heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other. Helping us embrace our proper place. Remembering that God is God and we're not. And this is the safest place for a man to be. And therefore, how practical is this doctrine? For us to remember, you're not God, son. And God loves me very much. And where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But, but I'm not God. That is such a helpful doctrine. And that'll keep a man from a million different vices and falling into 10 million different pitfalls, like cheating on his wife, going headlong into sexual sin, other compromises. You know, one of my buddies, a pastor from South Africa, he, he says, Eric, I'm, I'm scared of God. I love God and I know he loves me, but I'm also scared of him. I'm terrified of him. And, and th that's a right response. It's a right response. Speaking of which, Job 40 at the end, Yahweh said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him re who reproves God answer it. That's a good verse. It's just tough talk. James 4.13, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in, bu in business and get rich and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, application of God's sovereignty, if the Lord wills, if it's in God's decree, if it's in his plan, we'll live and we'll go and make a profit and do this or that. But as it is, he says, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And James, of course, gets this from Proverbs 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for thou dost not know what a day may bring. Good one to memorize. And of course, Romans 9.19. Romans 9, what a beautiful, what beautiful, adult, manly. We're out of our underoos and we're wearing big boy pants now. Manly conversation about God. The center of man conversation about God is Romans 9, is it not? The context there being, of course, a hard thing, a predestination. That God chooses whom he's going to save. He does not choose whom he's not going to save. And Paul is reacting to the objections. We'll get to Romans 9 soon. You'll say to me then, in light of predestination, why is anyone at fault? In other words, why do people go to hell? Really hard stuff, especially if, like me, you have close family members who are not saved. Who resists his will? On the contrary. Here, here's, here's the answer to that. On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? The sovereignty of God helps men remember who we are. And the answer to that protestation, which is a legitimate question. Okay, God's not saying you can't ask questions. You certainly can but the answer to it is the sovereign prerogative of God. Notice he doesn't pop the hood and say, well, let me show you how all this works with the hardwiring of sovereignty and responsibility and all this stuff. He says, I'm sovereign. In other words, the thing 
who makes the stuff, and then the stuff that's made, the stuff that's made isn't really in a place to boot the maker off of his throne, the sovereign prerogative. So that, that's just a, the humbling factor, the, the, the crucifying of the flesh. If you, can, if you can embrace what is written in Romans 9, you have done major damage to your fleshly nature that will produce fruit in your marriage, uh, when you and your wife have conflict, when you and your roommates have conflict, when you and your coworkers have conflict, and just the hard stuff of life. If a man can bow his knee to, to the straightforward text in Romans 9, wow, sanctification just went, you know, like in the Grinch, the Grinch who stole Christmas. My kids love that old story. You know, with uh, it's not Burl Ives. It's uh, uh, draw a blank. What's what's the guy's name? Talk to me, Richard. <laughs> no, the guy who narrates it. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and the Grinch. There's that part, you know, where his heart goes like that. You know, when he gets born again and saved. Um, when he's hearing the Who's, you know, singing hymns to Christ. I'll presume. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Down in Whoville, they're singing the carols, "Hark the Herald" and whatnot. And the Grinch gets born again. The sense in which that happens in sanctification when an already born again man finally bows his knee to Romans 9. Right? Just, I mean, you experience a massive increase, like the Grinch there, uh, where his heart enlarges, where your sanctification increases. Where you have just, you've just waved the white flag to the godness of God and allowed God to be God in one of the greatest things in which he likes to be God. Predestination, which is sovereignty. Make sense? That is so helpful, so practical, so useful. I think Romans 9 is one of the most useful texts in the entire Bible because of the implications of it. So what? By the grace of God, the response to the sovereignty of God is not to be protest or interrogation but humility and worship. Humility and worship. And how necessary that is for men. Letter E, embracing the sovereignty of God helps a man mature spiritually, something which every man is commanded to put effort into doing until he leaves this world. This, this is just a, a simple implication. I've kind of already talked about it, of God's sovereignty. Um, there, there is a sense in which embracing the sovereignty of God is a rite of passage that we are to make. Obviously, assuming you're born again. Um, and even if you're not, really, as you're teaching your, your kids, your sons, it's a rite of passage into masculinity. It's, you know, when we're, when we're little kids, you know, life is about us. We're selfish. We're only, we're only thinking about, you know, our G.I. Joe guys. And we get into high school, we're only thinking about our sports and the team and, you know, doing really well at the next event. And that's fine and that's great. And that has a purpose, you know, uh, but part of manhood is similarly, we're talking about practicality, transitioning from me to being at the center to God to being the center. And I just kind of like come into God's plan instead of saying, well, it's all about me and my plan. So there is a sense in which Calvinism is transitioning into manhood, where instead of you know, my free will, it's all about me and me choosing what I'm going to do. No, it's about God is sovereign. 
This is an adult doctrine, right? In the same way that as teenagers, that life's all about us, where God is not sovereign, where I reject that, then we're really saying God is all about me, that theology centers around me. And so that's, a, that's an immature doctrine. But maturity is allowing God to be God, right? When you grew up, you started realizing one thing, you know, you get in your 20s and you get a little older and realize, whoa, there's a huge world, a huge universe. It's not all about me. You know, what was that, what was that show that uh, Kurt Cameron, he's a dear man of God now that, uh, back in the 80s. What so was that show he was in? Family Growing Pains, yeah. And one day he stays home from school and uh, he, uh, he, he realizes, he like turns on the TV and like all his favorite shows are on in the middle of the day. And he realizes, oh man, if I would have went to school today, all of my favorite shows still would have been would have played. They wouldn't have stopped. They wouldn't have waited for me. And he has this sort of, you know, epiphany, this moment of enlightenment where he realizes like the world doesn't revolve around me. Right? That's a stupid illustration to 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 sort of picture transitioning from where God thinking about God isn't sovereign and rejecting Calvinism to coming in and saying, no, we need to let God be God. He is sovereign. And, and it doesn't, life doesn't revolve around me and my plan. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, one of the greatest statements of sovereignty in the entire Bible. He was already there, right? God was already doing this thing if, if I'm sick or not even alive. And, and I come into God's plan. And, I, and who am I to think, you know, I need to adjust this. And God gave us his word. He's sovereign and part of manhood is obedience. Bible says go to church. I need to go to church. Bible says love my wife. I need to love my wife. The Bible says that God chooses whoever he pleases. And man's not to talk back to him. Then I, I need to let God be God. And even if I would pre presume to not let God be God and reject the sovereignty of God, guess what? God's still going to be God. So part of adult masculinity is embracing this doctrine. Okay? And again, think of it like less about doctrine and more about moving from this, this teenage self-centered view of life to more of a mature, manly, God-centered view of life. Right? And part of growing sanctification and fleshing out masculinity is living out all the implications of that, like not complaining. Right? Complaining, me-centered, right? Not complaining. That's hard to do if you're a sinner like me. Tell us about that. Good point, Phil. Well, he, he just said the doctrines of grace are something that man matures into. And then the same thing happened with Mueller. You know, his ministry exploded when he just surrendered to the reality that God is in charge of all things. Amen. That's a great illustration. Two great men of God by God's grace. Uh, yeah, it's like this, this, this is the transition we need to make right here. And let's be reminded it's a transition from pride to a measure, not perfect, Humility, right? And this is a very important trans transition in masculinity, going this direction. Right? E even, even atheists in secular culture and some of these like crazy rites of passage that we've realized, they do this. Like instead of just caring about myself to caring about the tribe and the village. Instead of playing with my sticks in the jungle, 
I'm going to, I'm going to learn to hunt and learn to kill and learn to defend so I can, because life isn't just about me. It's about the village and the people. And that's categorically what's happening here in a much broader way as it pertains to God's sovereignty. Right? So a little God over here where, you know, God isn't sovereign and no, he doesn't choose who's saved. That's, that's a very, um, that's an infantile, that's a childish, childish view of God. Again, because functionally it's just surrounding me. Life is about me, which is a childish way to live and think as even an unbeliever. Right? Makes sense? Um, it's a logical approach. It, it is, yeah. One of the things people say last day is, I couldn't believe in a God. Exactly. Yeah, what, what's the, very good, what's the perspective that that's starting from, Ian? It's saying that I can't believe in this. Right. So who's the center? Who's the judge? I'm not going to allow that. Well, when you say that, you're saying, I'm above God. I'm going to permit this. I'm not going to permit it. That, that can't pass my quality check. <laughs> and a helpful illustration. Excellent point. Thank you. One of the most helpful illustrations of like everything you said is the fact that like Say in July, at about 10.30 p.m. at night, you stand on the ground and you look up and there's lots of stars. That's just a helpful illustration of all this. Oh, I I'm not up there. I can't jump up there. I can't go up there. I can't touch up there. Those things are above me. I'm right here. Clay feet on a clay surface. It's a, it's a fabulous illustration if we stop and like think about it for more than a half a second of all this and what you just said. Um, and okay, cool. We got a little more time. Letter F, kind of continuing to move forward in this by way of application. Why is the sovereignty of God useful for men? Letter F, embracing the sovereignty of God helps a man grow in a biblically balanced way. In a biblically balanced way. I'm not going to say all there is to say about it. We'd be here for days. But as we think, and again, this is an implication of Scripture, but as we think on sovereignty, submit to his majesty therein, we grow in a balanced way. The balanced way. What's meant by that? Um, among other things, the sovereignty of God produces a balance um, in two very important masculine traits of humility and courage. Humility and courage. Very, very important traits that are quite necessary today. Humility and courage as we think about masculinity, okay? And um, Douglas Wilson talks a little bit about this in his book, uh, uh, Raising, what's it called, Seth? Yeah, Raising Boys to Be Men, is that what it's called? Yeah. So. A right understanding, granted, we're never like perfectly believing everything that is about God, but as we like do this transition, this is going to bring a, a sweet balance, not one that the world will always like, but God likes it, of humility and courage. What's the connection there? Um, humility without courage is, is effeminate. 
And men are not allowed to be that. Like, there's no such thing as a man like get in touch with your feminine side. That's not a thing. Um, uh, and how, how is that so? Well, let's define courage. One way to define it, consequent of embracing the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty, the attitude of submission wherein we place the revealed will of God, the commands of God in scripture, as superior to our feelings and act accordingly. Similarly, courage means we place the decorative will of God, like whatever happens in life, as superior to our feelings and respond according to the commands in scripture by the grace of God. So this might arise if we have a sense of God's greatness, but we fail to embrace the sovereignty that he reigns, he rules, he decrees all things, that gives courage. So if, if we fail to embrace the sovereignty of God, we might have, we might have some humility, like a, a fear without courage, and that's not good. Courage, true God-centered, okay, we're talking God-centered, courage, is a masculine trait that is produced and bolstered by the sovereignty of God. Again, that he's in control, I submit to what he says, so I'm going to move forward. I'm going to say this thing that's hard. I'm going to talk about this thing that's difficult or do this thing that's difficult because God commands it, he's sovereign, therefore, Life isn't about me. I'm transitioning through that and placing his revealed will over myself. Feelings down here, God up here, and going to move forward. And often that, the product of that will be courageous masculinity. I'm willing to have people not like me. That's not my goal. My goal is to be faithful to God and worship him. But courage, God-centered courage, becomes the product. However, courage without humility, similarly, not applying sovereignty correctly, can tend towards proud arrogance and self-worship. Again, this can arise if we have man-centered theology where worship is about us, what we want, or the Lone Ranger Christian who um, won't invite, won't plug into Christian community, won't invite, and he's bold, so he seems courageous, but he's proud. He can't have other men speak into his life, other men come alongside him. So he also hasn't had the sovereignty of God. He hasn't applied it fully. If he's still in this uncrucified pride and arrogance, um, but proud. And so pride can be a failure to embrace and apply, among other things, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, brothers, is a pride crusher. I mean, a pride slaughterer. And Dr. MacArthur uh, says this eloquently in your notes there, uh, on God's sovereignty and human pride. He says this, quote, No doctrine is more despised by the natural mind, hence the propensity to me-centered theology, is more despised by the natural mind than the truth that God is absolutely sovereign. Human pride loves the suggestion that God orders everything, controls everything, rules over everything. The carnal mind burning with enmity against God, abhors the biblical teaching that nothing comes to pass except according to his eternal decrees. Most of all, the flesh hates the notion that salvation is entirely God's work. If God chose who, he, who would be saved, and if his choice was settled before the foundation of the world, then believers deserve no credit for their salvation. Amen. Amen to that. So this doctrine, the reason this doctrine is rejected and why Arminianism exists isn't because 
This is a hard thing intellectually to figure out. Well, I'm just not really academic. That has nothing to do. This is a very easy doctrine to understand, not to embrace. And it is not an intellectual problem that helps us do this transition. It is a moral problem. It's a spiritual moral problem. Right? You need to mature and become a Calvinist, if I could say that. All right? It, and when I say that, I'm just saying that God is totally sovereign in everything, including salvation. Okay? We need to progress morally and spiritually to come under and embrace, like, God is God and we're not. So then humility concerning the sovereignty of God, one way to define it, Consequent of embracing a biblical understanding of God, you know, his attributes, holiness, love, majesty, mercy, sovereignty, and a biblical understanding of ourself, our sinfulness, our depravity, our inability, imperfection until glory, not being sovereign, the attitude of a privileged servant and child before God, which sees oneself as undeserving of blessing, in need of teaching input and correction from others in the body of Christ, and requiring constant grace from God for every moment of life. It's one way to define humility. So then embracing the sovereignty of God will, among other things, encourage us as men to ever be growing in a biblical balance of courage and humility. I'm courageous because I'm going to do what God says, even if like, it's my, I don't feel like it. And I'm humble because I'm lowering my place and bowing the knee in a Romans 9 kind of way because God is sovereign and I'm not. So therefore, in my opinion, I think this is the most single practical doctrine there is. Shoe, shoe leather, street level. You don't have to teach a lot about marriage when people start, when you're teaching this and people are embracing this. Like details about, you know, what, I should, what should I say in this moment? What should I say in that moment? You should just be humble. It's God is sovereign. And I'm not or I should be courageous before my wife. Because even though I don't feel like saying what needs to be said, I'm gonna say it anyways, which is actually humility in itself, as I submit what I feel like to the sovereign rulership and word of God. And may God help us men to ever be growing into this. This is, this is like, we're constantly having to <laughs> you know, it's not like we arrive. Please don't think I'm saying that. Okay. Um, we got about a minute left. Just any thoughts, comments? Anything you want to add? So the hugeness of God is that God is sovereign. And that's just real. We're not like playing that up. We're just trying to grab everything that scripture says. Say, all right, this is the revealed word of God, and this is who God is. All right. Well, as we're concluding here, gentlemen, I pray for Richard tonight. Richard, as you guys know, is a candidate for eldership. And we've been uh, kind of grilling him and just walking with him through that for a long time. Um, and tonight is the culmination of that. He has a, uh, a two and a half-ish hour just oral exam about life. Like, how's your holiness? How's your private life with your wife? Theology? defending this, other stuff.
Feeling good about it, Richard? <laughs> You're going to do great by God's grace. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for your word. It's so challenging, and I see my sinfulness and, and ways that I and perhaps others might see this of themselves, that I am still man-centered in, in, in so many ways, and, and it's juvenile according to your word. But Father, we affirm your lordship and um, help us to be courageous and humble uh, and, and uh, affirm your sovereignty as is befitting of men and masculinity. Uh, and give these brothers great strength. Give them favor and wisdom, Lord, just making a lot of decisions and the difficulties of job and life and family and, and, and all kinds of things. Father, give them extra grace and extra wisdom and all they're facing today until we uh, gather for worship Sunday. And we just pray for our dear brother, Richard, uh, as father, you are uh, calling him to eldership, that you would give him extra grace to do that and to shepherd the flock of God and join us in doing so uh, for the glory of Christ and the good of the saints. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks guys. Thanks JB for breakfast. Appreciate it. <laughs>